And our passage this morning is taken from Hosea chapter 10. We are still in the prophecy of Hosea. Strange book, strange circumstances as well. Hosea was a prophet who was commissioned by God to marry a prostitute and was living in those heartbreaking circumstances for 25 years. It wasn't a short stretch of time. It was a prolonged season in his life. And his marriage to this woman was meant to mirror the very conflicted relationship of God's people as they were living unfaithfully with Him. And that's why all of this is written down for us. Young Christians and young theologians, last week we were in Hosea's prophecy and then we jumped to the New Testament and we heard about Jesus meeting with and talking with the woman at the well. And this morning we're going to leapfrog again. We're not going to stay in Hosea. We're going to jump to the New Testament. And I want you to see if you can hear the familiar woman that we'll meet up with this morning. Who is it? Who do we know and are familiar with who we'll see in our time together in the Scriptures this morning? And then for those of you who are a little bit older, you could answer this question. What's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? We talk about those two, but what is it that's different about them when we talk about Old and New Testaments? This is the good news of Jesus In the very difficult, the very beautiful prophecy of Hosea. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. And as his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it. And so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig in the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed." Thorn and thistle shall grow upon their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gebeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gebeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity." Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But now I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. And therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed 
As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. And thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. And this is our story, O Lord. At dawn, every day, we should be utterly cut off and you should have nothing to do for, with us. Because our evil is great. And yet, as great as our evil is, the grace of the Lord is greater still. And it was Jesus who was cut off for us. And now, instead of crying out with lament, we can sing praises. And we can sing, within your house is where we long to be, not wandering on our own and no longer making our own way. We pray that you would awaken and revive and bring to life our hearts. Some of us are dimmed and dulled to the things of the Lord, and some of us are dead to them. But either way, you can intervene, you can reach in and breathe life into us. And we ask you to do it. Give to us all of your gifts in the gospel and fill us with fruit that others can see us and hear us and know that grace is alive over us and within us too. And now open our eyes that we can see the good news in this passage, a strange and dark-sounding passage, but there's grace here too. And carve ears into our stony heads that we can hear the good news once again and make our cold and hardened hearts alive with this good news once again. For it all, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. And would you be seated? <clears throat> a pastor friend of mine officiated a wedding this summer, and um, I wasn't at this particular wedding, but I wish that I had been there to see it. The story goes that the pastor gave the wedding sermon, which is part of our tradition. A marriage is not supposed to be filled with the useless words that a husband and wife so adeptly throw around, but a marriage is to be filled with the words of life from the Savior. And so after the wedding sermon, the pastor looked up at the expectant couple and he said, I now pronounce you man and wife. But that's not supposed to be a question. That's a statement. You say it with authority. You declare it with conviction. And so the bride stepped in and tried to help. It was, after all, only the day that she'd been dreaming of since she was nine years old. And no fool preacher was going to muck it up now. So the bride hissed at him, vows, vows. And the preacher slapped a hand to his forehead and said out loud, I forgot the vows. And so the bride said through her clenched, whitened teeth, Then say them now. And he said, No, no, you don't understand. I forgot the vows. I forgot to bring the vows. And he turned to the congregation and asked, 
Does anybody happen to have any vows that we could use? You can't have a marriage without vows. Now, for six weeks, we've been in this middle portion of Hosea's prophecy, and it's a section that comes off stern. I was with my daughters at a street market, and in one of the vendor's stalls, we saw a framed portrait of a blue-complected, frowning Jesus, and we stood there hypnotized by it for a few minutes. And then I said out loud, that is one angry Jesus. And my daughter said, yeah, I'm glad that is not the Jesus we worship. But he can certainly come off that way. You can get that impression of him in this string of chapters in the middle of Hosea's prophecy. Listen to the editorial headings, the chapter headings in this middle section. Chapter 4, the Lord accuses Israel. Chapter 5, punishment coming for Israel and Judah. Chapters 6 and 7, Israel and Judah are unrepentant. Chapter 8, Israel will reap the whirlwind. Chapters 9 and 10, the Lord will punish Israel. That's a very uncomfortable survey. And thinking out loud for our neighbors and friends, if that's what you find when you crack the covers of the Bible to read it, why would you ever read it at all? If that's what's waiting for us inside the covers of the Bible, why read it? That's a valid question and here's an honest answer. When we run into these gloomy stretches of Scripture, it's not just that God is taking His vengeance. He's doing something much more. He's doing something far better. God is keeping His vows. Your God didn't forget to show up ready to make vows, and He's never lost sight of them after having made them to you. And do you remember the wedding vows of your God? Do you remember what he vows to his people? I will be your God and I will make you my people. And then after he stated his vows, he spilled blood over them. He split animals in half and he laid the pieces out in this pathway of death and he walked this road of blood alone. He didn't let his people represented in Abraham, walk with him. He made Abraham so drowsy he couldn't walk a straight line if he wanted to. And walking this landscape of butchery by himself, God was saying, all the curses for unfaithfulness, I'll take them on myself and every last required obedience that would forge for us a relationship of wholeness Those obediences will be mine to perform as well. You will fail. I will not, he was saying. And all I ask from you is not effort. All I ask from you is that you be satisfied with my love. And you believe that it has no rival. That's it. That's all I require. My redeeming love for your returned love. My active, initiating love. For your dependent love. My rescuing love. For your agreeing love. That's the transaction. 
the wedding vow he's made with us is I will be your God and you will be my people through a Savior. And he can't walk away from that vow very easily, now can he? He has to keep that vow. And in the meantime, he can't applaud our prostitution. He has to oppose it. The difference between the way God makes vows and the way we make them is in verse 4. My people utter mere words. Words thrown lightly. The most important words said without meaning. With empty oaths, my people make their covenants. But I don't make my covenant with you emptily. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Where crops should be, where crops should grow, curses spread. I have to get in the way of your trysts with your idols. I have to disrupt your celebrations and festivals of brokenness. I will make it hard for you to run off with the lovers that excite you and promise much more than they can ever give you. Lovers who have never made vows to you. Oh, you can still run off with them, but you have to reject me to do it. And in the meanwhile, I have to reject your rejection. And that's what makes this chapter seem so dark and gloomy. What the living God is doing is He's rejecting our rejection of Him. I'm not going to make this easy on you. I'm going to make this frustrating and difficult for you. Because I love you with vows attached. So in verse 5 and on into verse 6. Your golden calf, the one that you set up in your temple. The one you fall down before. The one you tremble for as you approach it. I'm going to have it carried off to Assyria. Your enemies will conquer you and they're going to take your God away. It was a sign that the people's God had failed to love them and keep them and protect them. Whenever the statue of a God was carried off after conquest in battle, it was a very clear picture that that God had been defeated. And then in verse 8, I'll let your altars grow over with thorns and thistles and weeds. Since you didn't worship me at your altars, they're altars of death, not life. I'm going to allow them to be abandoned. And in verse 7, I'll cut down your king. He will not stand like an oak, for he does not look to me. Your king will tremble like a snapped off twig floating on the surface of the water. And in verses 13 and 14, you trust in the strength of your warriors and not in the strength of your God, but your fortresses will all fall and your soldiers will not be able to protect your women and children. And then in verse 13, you've plowed iniquity and offense and you reap injustice and you eat the fruit of lies. And that should catapult us back to the very first verse of the chapter. You are supposed to be my luxuriant vine, bearing fruit of my goodness and grace, Israel, but you're bare. You grow nothing, all because you do not believe my vow to you. 
In the 19th century, at the University of Edinburgh Medical School, there was a brilliant lecturer named Dr. Joseph Bell. He was such an extraordinary doctor that when Queen Victoria traveled in Scotland, Bell was requested to be the royal physician. He used to tell his students that in order to be good doctors, they would have to learn to use their eyes, not merely to see, but to see what others refused to see. He insisted with his students that they would have to cultivate the skill of observation. Bell's own powers of observation were so keen that it was said he could diagnose a patient before the patient had uttered a word about the symptoms being suffered. He could guess the patient's occupation and recent activities just by looking at that one. He became a pioneer in the field of forensic pathology. And he was often called in by the constabulary to help them solve difficult crimes. Bell became the particular interest of one of his students who, incidentally, was much more successful as a writer than he ever was as a doctor. And he patterned his most famous character after the professor he admired so greatly. The student's name was Doyle. Arthur Conan Doyle. And the character inspired by Dr. Bell was the legendary Sherlock Holmes. Now, in the passage, there's something even more troubling than just keen powers of observation. In verse 2, we're told God knows our hearts. He holds up to us our activities throughout the passage, but He does that to show us how clearly He reads and sees our hearts. He has an even more astonishing power than that. He has the ability to make known to us His heart. And he gives it to us again in verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your hard-packed ground, your hearts that grow nothing. Do these things if you can. And of course, he's bringing us to a point of futility. We can't sow righteousness. We can't reap steadfast love. It's impossible for us to break up the hardness of our hearts by ourselves. So he says... It's time to seek the Lord. Turn away from all these empty, futile things you chase and turn back to me. Turn to the Lord. And do you see His name printed in all capital letters there? That's the covenant name. The name that makes vows. He won't turn you away. He will reign upon you with righteousness. But, of course, His people didn't turn their hearts toward His willing heart, and we can be just as stubborn. If you can't feel the insult in all of this, you might check your pulse. How many more nights does Hosea, the heartbroken prophet, need to sit at home in the front room with the lights off, staring out the front window, wondering where Gomer, his wife, is, who she's with, and how they're touching And worst of all, what they're saying. Why does she believe the sugar-coated whispers of a stranger more than the wedding words her husband is willing to weep and sweat and bleed out in his flesh every day? 
And how many more years does the holy God need to wait for His people to turn their hearts away from kings and princes and political treaties and alliances with neighboring superpowers and homemade idols, gods that they had fashioned by preference, not gods who had made them after some divine characteristic? How long should He wait for His people to come home and live in the covenant of His love? I mean, for both Hosea, the faithful husband, and for God, the steadfast, loving divinity, what has been done to push the beloved away? Nothing. They've merely loved, and that love was too unbelievable. So for God's part, How many more words of faithfulness does He need to speak to His people? And how many more times does He need to call them to believe His unbreakable vow? And how many more pleading prophets does He need to send to them? And how many more saving acts does He need to perform to convince them and to turn them and to reconcile them and to recreate them and to restore them? How many more does He have to do? Just one. Only one. His people let the time for seeking Him pass them by, but God did not allow the time to slip past. And the Scripture says in Galatians 4.4, when the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son born of a woman. To keep His vow, God sends an angel to appear suddenly in a virgin's bedroom to make a startling announcement. Because the answer to Gomer's trolling the red light district and prowling for a sensation of love in the form of endless new distractions because the real thing is too mysterious and perplexing and overwhelming. It's too big for her. And the answer to Israel's constant unbelief and the answer to the church's lack of faith And the answer to our daily distrust and unrepentance, the answer to all of it is a virgin birth. A baby in the womb of a virgin. This time, when God speaks the vow of His salvation, He will make Himself known as the God who saves us, not with strong words, but in cries. And the cries of a baby in Bethlehem. And then in the cries of anguish and pain on a cross. And then the cries of astonishment that the stone has been rolled away and the Savior is not in the tomb where they had laid Him. Much of that comes later. For now, the question has to be answered, why a baby? Why has He chosen to speak in a baby? He's chosen the scandal of grace to take away the scandal of sin and shame. And He's chosen a new miraculous birth of holiness in us. As unexpected and as unexplainable as the King of glory Himself cradled in fallen arms and nursing at the breast of a deathling. Life is interrupting our doom, in other words. And why a virgin? The most unbelievable piece of it all. 
Ah, because that's what he makes us when Jesus enters our life. It's the perfect contrast to Gomer the prostitute and Israel the cheating people. One who does not give herself away cheaply. One who is reserved and kept to belong to another and only one. That's the effect of the gospel in our lives. That's what it does to us. The claims of all others begin to fall extremely thin. And the one who makes us holy, his claim on us becomes more dense and harder to get around until you don't want to get around it at all, not really. You see what Jesus does? He doesn't tell us, try harder, slave away, prove your diligence, earn your purity, be impressive before God, maybe then He'll love you. The answer to our well-practiced impurity is sent purity. He doesn't leave us stuck in prostitution and he doesn't leave himself stuck with a prostitute people. He keeps the vows so that both the groom and the bride can delight and rejoice in the marriage. Now the difference between Mary and Gomer, the difference between Mary and the Israelites Hosea was preaching to and snubbed by in the streets And the difference between Mary and the average churchgoer is not that Mary was less sinful. Her heart was filled with the same dirt and darkness as everyone else's. And it wasn't that Mary was more righteous. An angel appeared to her and she was terrified. That is an acknowledgement of unrighteousness. She was a normal, ordinary girl. The sharp difference is Mary believed the Word of God. She believed His vow and she staked her life on it. And it wasn't easy. Believing the Word of God meant that her neighbors would always look at her with suspicious eyes and whisper about her behind her back. Think of it. How does a pregnant teenager say, no, 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 you don't understand. The Holy Spirit did this. And all of her neighbors would mutter under their breath and say, what's gotten into these kids? It wasn't like this when we were growing up. No one would ever believe her story. And her fiancé wanted to divorce her quietly until he has a dream that he can't even fully explain himself. And the part of the story that terrifies me more than any other is the part of the story that isn't even printed there. What did her parents say? Can you imagine the conversation this girl must have had with her parents? Terrifying for her that the Word of God comes into her life like this. But she had this shockingly honest attitude If I don't believe what God has spoken to me through an angel or through something that I trip across as I flip through the printed pages of Scripture or through some fool wearing a robe standing up on Sunday morning, if I don't believe what God has spoken to me, then what exactly is left to believe? If I don't believe what He says, what do I have left to believe in? And that's what makes us new. 
That's the new birth in us that never stops and never gets old. And that's what makes us virginal pure after a life of determined impurity. Believing the grace and power in what God speaks to us. The newness we wonder at. The newness we don't experience nearly enough. The newness we all long for is a newness that comes from believing God's wedding words more than you believe anything else you may be facing. Believe the Word of God more than your own fear. Believe the Word of God more than you believe the most enticing temptation. The one that's hot and hard to walk away from. Believe the Word of God more than all your troubles, all your problems. Believe the Word of God more than your stubbornness in your sin. Now I'm going to tell you this, although it's dangerous for me to tell you. Over the last two weeks, Jennifer and I have done pretty much nothing but fight and argue. It's been a really hard couple of weeks for us. And this last week was more difficult than the week before. We had argued so much that we finally decided it's best just to be civil and to say as little as possible to each other. Which is not a fun way to live. And friends from church who know us and saw what was going on said... If it would help, we'd like to come over and talk this evening. So on Thursday evening, they came over and we spent hours talking. And it got to be 11 o'clock and it was apparent we weren't going to get anywhere. Even though all evening these folks had told us the gospel over and over and over again, we were ready to pull the plug and call it a night. And then this couple told me, in two sentences, they told me the sermon I'd been working on all week. We hadn't spoken of it. They just gave me back the sermon that I was slaving over in my study this week. And what flashed through my head was, crap, now I have to believe it or I have to get something new to preach on Sunday. And that's it. I had to believe the Word of God more than my own stubbornness and sin. Believe the Word of God more than your anger and your sense of injustice and your sense of entitlement. Believe the Word of God more than your worry and anxiety, more than your sadness and your grief, more than your loneliness and your illness and your pain. Believe the Word of God more than what's more than what's respectable and impressive and popular. Believe the Word of God more than ridicule and misrepresentation and misunderstanding and slander. Believe it more than inconvenience and difficulty that comes from believing and applying His Word and living by it. And believe His Word more than you believe your own doubt and skepticism. More than you believe your own unbelief. And if you're a skeptic and you wonder if you should believe this, could you possibly ever believe any of this? Here's where you start. Just believe His words simply and in small things. Small things. And see if you can hold on to your unbelief. He has vowed to make us His purified, reborn people. Will you believe His vow? 
I love Halloween. I love the fact that for one night a year we can turn ourselves into anything we want to be. And so I spend weeks out in the garage, hours on end, building costumes for our family. So that one evening each year we can step out of our lives and pretend to be what we're not. And this year we were a school of jellyfish. Clear plastic umbrellas, a hot glue gun, and a lot of bubble wrap. Now, the problem with Halloween is that it isn't just a holiday for many of us. It's a way of life. We routinely try to make ourselves into something that we're not. And we walk down the street every day dressed in costume, playing make-believe, only we believe it with all our hearts. We're dead serious. We convince ourselves We can be self-sufficient or that we can steal a love better than the love that God can give or that we can be people who don't need his vows for life and peace and joy and security. We don't need his word for renewal. We can be people who can make it on our own living by a wisdom and a strength that doesn't come from him and it's not subject to him. We can be Gomer and Israel and we can We can actually do what they could not. We can get away with it. We can make it work. Always looking, always shopping for something better to come along. And eventually it will come along, we tell ourselves. But look, it stops being fun when it becomes the routine. It stops being fun when you make it your religion and your faith. And that's why we need Christmas. You can't live in the fiction of Halloween. So next month, we're going to climb up into our attics and we're going to dig through boxes and we're going to pull out creches and and little figurines that show the birth of Jesus in molded plastic and fired porcelain and carved wood. And the danger with putting up these little sheds on mantles and bookshelves and as the centerpiece on the dining room table is that they make us think the coming of Jesus is somehow quaint or sweet and sentimental. They they make us think that the coming of Jesus is an ornament to decorate our otherwise manageable lives. But that's not what the coming of Jesus is. It's urgent and necessary. It's a divine interruption, a divine intervention. The virgin birth is for Gomer, the cheating wife. The virgin birth is for Hosea, the tear-streaked husband, waiting at the window. The virgin birth is for Israel, chronically, his unbelieving people. The virgin birth is for the virgin herself, who lives under rumor and slander for the rest of her days, and for her aging husband, who has to trust beyond his senses And he's taken for an old fool by all his friends in the carpenter's union. And the virgin birth is for the shepherds who show up. Societal outcasts. There is no position in the world as despised as that of the shepherd, the rabbis used to say. And the virgin birth is for astrologers from a strange far off land who are darkened in their understanding. But they're being drawn to God 
and his Savior through the word appearing in the flash of a star in the sky. And the virgin birth is for ordinary people whose lives are a bloody mess on your best days. Virgin birth is for everybody desperate to be newborn. It's for everybody desperate for a new birth. And those little sheds and plasticine saints mean more than it's Christmas time. And December 25th is right around the corner. They mean we can stop our make-believe now. They mean we don't have to settle for the empty psychology of endlessly reinventing ourselves. They mean God has kept His vow. God has sent His Word. And believing His Word, God will make us new. Will you believe? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. On our best days, O Lord, our lives are bloody messes. And we cannot plow in righteousness for ourselves. And we cannot... So steadfast love. We cannot do the things that need to be done in our lives and in our hearts. And we need you to rain down upon us again with your righteousness. So keep for us your unbreakable vow. And fill us with the faith needed to see that your word is reliable and we can throw our whole weight on it and it will catch us and support us. Allow us to know that we can believe your word and do what you call us to do. And that is our purity. That is our virginal radiance. That is our newness and our life. And what you call us to do is to believe the good news in your Son, the Savior. It's a struggle. We want to do things on our own. We want to take matters into our own hands. But like Israel throughout Hosea's prophecy, it'll get us nowhere. It'll earn for us sure death. So instead, soften our hearts. And allow us to believe we need to be newly born in Jesus, the sent Savior. And allow us to live the wonderful life of believing and following your word. For all of these things, we will give you thanks. Keep us now as we finish our worship. You are the great God who does not cut us off and cast us away. But instead, you drew us closer in the flesh of an infant king, crucified and risen, and risen into heaven where he sits and rules over all things for his church at the right hand of God. How can we not praise one like this? And how can we not commit all of our troubles and needs into his hands and know that he will rule over us, not with severity, but with love, Help us now as we continue to praise you for all of these things. We ask it in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.